0: Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Thomas R. Schreiner. He is Associate Dean and James Buchanan Harris, Professor of New Testament at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a prolific scholar, Uh, our focus today is a commentary that he has written on the book of Hebrews, which is just out under that very title, Hebrews. Uh, And so we say welcome, Professor Schreiner. Thank you, Mark, it's a delight to be with you. Good, good, well, right off the bat, let's jump right into the book. Uh, You single out the final words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished, as capturing the theology of Hebrews. How so?
1: You know, one thing I want to say at the outset is Hebrews is is very beautifully written. It's it's clearly written by a person who's educated and an intellectual. Yeah. Uh, if, if you've re- if you've read the scriptures, you know you know that Paul is brilliant but the literary style of Hebrews surpasses what we find in Paul and yeah. to answer your question the letter begins by saying in in many parts and in many ways god of old has spoken to the prophets but in these last days he's spoken to us in his son and i think in a way that that's a description of what the book's about in the in these last days we have the the, the definitive Final climactic word in Jesus Christ, because uh, the author of the Hebrews argues that he's the fulfillment of all the prior words that we find in the diverse uh, genres we see in the o- Old Testament.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who wrote the letter? What do we know?
1: <laughs> that, 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 that is that is such a fascinating Question and something that the, the church has debated really from, from the beginning. So there's a, there's a long tradition that uh, the letter was, was written by Paul. I don't think that's the earliest tradition. It, it really triumphed in early church history through uh, the great church uh, fathers, Jerome and Augustine. At least that's one reason. Probably it was received into the canon, and and there are still a few defenders, not many, of Pauline authorship today. Mm-hmm. But most scholars today, and I would be among them, most scholars today don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. And there's but there's some brilliant guesses. Uh, you know, very, a very interesting guess is uh, Barnabas. And Barnabas is an interesting guess because we know he was a a Levite and a priest, and and there's the priestly themes permeate the letter. So that is a very interesting guess. Some early speculation that perhaps uh, Luke wrote the letter, who wrote uh, the uh, third gospel and Acts. And I think one of the most fascinating guesses as well. This was first suggested by Luther. Is that Apollos wrote the letter, which fits with the literary style. Some people have even thought that the letter could have come from Alexandria, and we know that we know that Apollos came from Alexandria. Mm-hmm. But the disadvantage of Luther's view is Luther, Luther's the first person to have suggested Apollos. So. Maybe so, but fifteen hundred years later, no one suggested it really before Luther uh-huh. but i I agree I agree with the famous words of origin, origin, who wrote in the third century, speculates who might have written the letter, but he finally says God only knows, and I, I think that 's the right answer. There, there are many guesses out there, but yeah. at the end of the day, I don't think we know for sure who who wrote it. But scholars love to engage in uh,
0: speculation about who might have written the letter. And roughly, you want to pin down a, a window when it was written. Most would say
1: between, I'd say sixty and ninety, roughly. Okay. I, I support the view that it was written before the destruction of the temple. We, we don't know for sure. There's no date on the letter. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing in the letter per se that gives us a precise date. But since the author talks so much about really the tabernacle and sacrifices and the priesthood, I agree with those who... S- Say that he probably—we have to say probably—he probably would have would have mentioned the fact that the temple was destroyed if the letter was written after that. And just for the sake of your listeners, the temple was destroyed in AD seventy by the Romans. So I hmm. I take the date to be in the late
0: sixties. Okay. And to whom? How specific can we narrow down the audience? For the letter,
1: yeah, they're, they're, these are such interesting and fascinating questions, but also they can be frustrating yeah. because you know the, the the to the Hebrews it says. But there have been all kinds of guesses as to who the readers are and where they were. And, uh, you know, some, you know, one theory that's really not in favor much today, but some people even thought it was written to the to a scene Christians. Some think it was written to uh, Jewish Christians in Palestine. Some some scholars argue even more today than in the past probably, but that it was written to Gentiles. I still think the main, it's hard to say with so many people writing, but I still think the most popular view in scholarship, and the one I think is right is that it was written to Jewish Christians in Rome. Of course, we don't know that for sure, but um, I I favor that theory in my commentary.
0: Early on, on page 13, you say that, quote, in distinctive message and style uh, that Hebrews differs from every other item in the New Testament. Now, you talked about its high literary quality, is there anything else that you would single out that makes Hebrews so distinctive to you relative to all the other books in the New Testament?
1: I think the the emphasis on the priesthood of Melchizedek instantly stands out to readers. Yeah. I mean, this Melchizedek, if you read the scriptures, he's really a very mysterious figure. I mean, he's mentioned in Genesis 14, and then the only other place is in Psalm 110 verse 4. So we, we have this mysterious person, we know nothing else about him, who, who appears in these two texts, and no, no other New Testament writing uh, says anything about Melchizedek, And actually most of the New this is debated, but at least explicitly, the language of priesthood isn't applied to Jesus Christ. In the same way that we find it in in Hebrews, and Hebrews exploits the idea that Jesus is the Melchizedekian priest, and he really plays off Psalm one ten four. You you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And I always tell my students, I say, you know, the the author of Hebrews took that verse, and he and he wrenched every drop out of it. Every word mm-hmm. out of that verse. I mean, the word "forever," for instance, just to use one example, the the author goes to to le- great lengths to say that Jesus's priesthood is uh, irrevocable. It lasts forever. It's it's perpetual. It will never end. And, and he he bases that, at least in part, a significant part, on the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus. So you see. One thing I often say to students, because Hebrews Hebrews can be difficult for people today. All the language of tabernacles, sacrifice, mm-hmm. the Aaronic priesthood, we're, we're not familiar with these traditions and customs and rituals and practices. But one way to think of Hebrews chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 is chapter 7. He is the better priest, Melchizedekian priest. Chapter 8, you have the better covenant, the new covenant, instead of the old covenant. And then chapters 9 and 10, you have the better sacrifice. It's a better sacrifice than the animal sacrifices offered under the erotic priesthood. All, all of that is—obviously, yeah, other texts speak about the new covenant, but the way Hebrews puts it together is quite distinctive and, and stands out.
0: Mm-hmm one more question before getting into some of the details of Hebrews, which which makes up the bulk of your study, but you refer on page 33 to the quote, already, but not yet, and you hyphenate those words, already, but not yet, eschatology of the New Testament. Can you explain that phrase? Yes.
1: And I think the already not yet is characteristic of uh, New Testament theology. And what we're saying when we speak of the already not yet is that another two words to use is salvation in Jesus Christ is inaugurated, but it's not consummated. In other words, through the, through the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the, the age to come, the promises of God— have been fulfilled. And yet, and yet they're not totally fulfilled. So one way to put this that's, I think, very accessible is we have new life in Christ now. We, as as John, to use Johannine language, we have eternal life, and yet we're still going to die uh, before we obtain the final resurrection so we see we see an all an already not not yet there we're we're forgiven of our sins and yet we still sin we have not yet been perfected in uh in every respect so so the already not yet speaks of the tension the tension that marks the christian life Hmm. of the good gifts of salvation that are ours and and yet yet we're not all that we uh should be in and, and will
0: be hmm. into into the book. I mean, I should say that the structure of the book is you present passages. Well, maybe I should tell you what do you do with each passage of the text. Describe what you provide for readers because I I, I see the book as, as tr- a tremendous pedagogical text. H- how does how, how do those sections work?
1: It's a biblical theological commentary. So we have, uh, you know, an introduction, and we've talked about the introduction. And then as we, we look at each passage, we, we give you this the scripture. So we, we provide that for the reader. Then we, we talk about the larger context of the passage. So maybe we cover 15 verses or whatever. I give a short summary of that. And then then a verse-by-verse exegesis and then a bridge, a bridge at the end where we we speak of how it applies to today's world. And and the first, before I give the scripture, there's a little there's an outline. I give an outline of the book as well. And all the volumes in the series will follow that same format. And at the end at the end of the commentary, I think some of them are doing it at the at the beginning, the beginning or the end, I have a biblical theological section where I talk about some of the themes in the book. Mm -hmm.
0: Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. Some some details. One of the early things that happen is that the author of Hebrews is careful to distinguish Jesus from the angels and even makes an important issue about making Jesus, as you say, for a short time Lower than the angels. Why focus so much on Jesus and the relationship to the angels?
1: There's a lot of speculation on that. My argument is: What? Why does he? Why does he bring up angels? I would want to say we we have to remember in this very theological book that Hebrews is a sermon. Right? He tells us that it's a it's a word of exhortation, chapter 13, verse 22. It's a Lagos paraklesis, a sermon. So, which is the same words we find Paul using in Acts chapter 13 verse 15 when he gives a sermon in Pisidium uh, Antioch in the synagogue. So we have a sermon and I, and I think I think the, the main the main point in the sermon is that the readers are, are, are exhorted not to fall away. So my understanding of the setting of the book is they are tempted to revert, to the practices of the old covenant. Mm-hmm. And what he tells what the author tells us in chapter two is the angels were the mediators of the law. So I think the the angels don't come up because the readers were tempted to worship angels, although some interpreters think that's correct. I think the angels arise because they were the mediators of the law, and therefore he wants to say that Jesus is better than the angels, he's greater than the angels, because it's all part of his argument that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Mm-hmm. So there's no—in my, in my reading, some interpreters disagree. There's no temptation to uh, adore the angels here. It's just uh, their their role as mediators of— uh, of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant, the the law given to Moses
0: on on Sinai. Yeah. One of the elements that does distinguish Jesus from the angels is that he is one who can, quote, as as you put it, he tastes death for everyone. Is this a primary assertion about Jesus in Hebrews here he he has to taste and that, that, that that's that's a, a strong metaphor to use there a taste death for everyone
1: yes and, and I think it's in you know, chapters one and two there's they're extraordinary there's extraordinary Christology and it's a, it's a bit this is overly simplistic, but we could say Chapter One is about the divinity of Christ. Chapter Two about his humanity, mm-hmm. and, and one of the interesting arguments he makes in Chapter Two is that the Son is better than angels because he's a human being, and that it was always God's intention that human beings would rule, would rule over angels. And, and therefore, of course, Jesus is greater than angels because he's divine. But it's not only because he's divine; he's also greater than than angels because he's human, and then, as you say, so remarkably, because he tasted death. And then, and then, what does Hebrews go on to say? Jesus, Jesus is our is our brother. He's he's not only our our Lord, but he, but we, by by taking flesh and blood. He 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 belongs to us. He belongs to uh, humanity, and uh, he shares the weakness of what it what it means to be a human being. And and yet he's triumphed, as as he says so beautifully and wonderfully, he's triumphed over death, so that we are now free from the fear from the fear of death.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that phrase, fear of death. Uh, do you say, or does Hebrews say yeah. that fear of death? is actually the greatest power of the devil
1: he doesn't say greatest but he does say he does say it then perhaps it is the greatest I haven't thought of that but it, but it, it certainly is the power a power the devil exercises so that's that's quite a fascinating way to put it isn't it and I think we see here the pastoral intention of the writers because he wants to say don't don't revert don't revert to a covenant that finally cannot liberate you from what is the specter that hangs over all of our lives, and that is the specter of uh, death that's hovering over us and uh, perhaps in some ways is never far from our minds. Yeah. And that we have have finally... uh, We triumph over death, but not in and of ourselves, but through Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah. And that... Jesus does not release us actually from all fear you 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 say uh, on page 139 you talk about the importance of fear that fear is good fear actually plays a, a moral role in our development is this one of the arguments of Hebrews
1: absolutely so one of the one of the key features of Hebrews of Hebrews is a sermon as I've already mentioned one what are the striking things in Hebrews are those five warning passages, which we find in chapter 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6, chapter 10, chapter 12. He, he sort of does, you know, theological exposition and then warning, theological exposition and warning. I think all those, the, all yeah. the theology serves or undergirds the, the warnings that permeate the book. But warnings promote fear, don't they? But there is a kind of healthy fear, isn't there? We ought not to conceive of, of fear as necessarily negative. Here's what I'd say: It isn't a paralyzing fear. Right. When when I drive the car, when I drive a car on the freeway, there there's a there's a healthy fear, hopefully not a paralyzing fear. And I think that's the kind of fear Hebrews has in mind. He's he, the author is saying, look, life and death are at stake. Life matters. Moral decisions that are made your commitment to Christ, it's a serious matter. And for the author of Hebrews, there's a final punishment. So there's a fear. It's not the only theme in the New Testament and and perhaps not even the primary theme, but it is a theme. And I think in our modern context, there's a tendency to think, well, all fear, any kind of fear is is somehow a substandard motive, but actually we 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 live with fear in our everyday lives constantly, and it protects us
0: from doing uh,
1: foolish things.
0: You do say that one of the warnings that is offered is against uh, a certain kind of laziness or sluggishness that sets sets in to people. What is the warning here? What is the danger? That's in chapter 5
1: and 6 and um, most would agree Hebrews is warning the readers if you if you fall away, if you and by, by fall away I think he means if you abandon Christ, if you commit apostasy, if you forsake Christ, then then there's no hope of salvation for you. So that, that is a very, a very serious and and stern warning. But I don't think he's saying that fundamentally to frighten readers. We just talked about fear. There's a fear involved. But I think it's the kind of warning that we give when you're standing on uh, yeah, the edge of the Grand Canyon. Don't fall in,
0: yeah. he's
1: saying. That life and death are at stake. And... So the laziness is not just some kind of casual laziness. It's laziness about the most important things in life. And I want to say Hebrews reminds us, and, 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 and sometimes we can forget this life matters our, our decisions in life are of eternal consequence we're not life is not life is not insignificant our decisions in life hebrews reminds us aren't trivial so that's a, a wonderful and glorious thing really to think about that our, we can fall into a kind of boredom and ennui about life and think nothing matters but hebrews argues no no your decisions do matter
0: Right. One very important element, you say, in Hebrews is, the, is precisely the conception of Jesus as priest, as God, but also as priest. You call him, actually, the perfected priest. Why is that important?
1: When we look at the introduction of the book, I mentioned the first two verses, but the author, I think, also says very significantly, after making cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I always say to my students, there's the end of the book right there. Because the cleansing of sins, full and final forgiveness has been achieved in the sacrifice of Christ. Notice the—he doesn't use the word language of forgiveness. I don't think it means something different from forgiveness, but he uses the language of cleansing. That's cultic language. That's priestly language. That's hmm. that's temple tabernacle language, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So we have we have a, a cleansing, a cleansing of sins, and and then Jesus Jesus is sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's Psalm 110 again. The Lord you, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, which is a very important psalm for the readers. I mentioned earlier, Psalm 110 verse 4 is where he mentions Melchizedek. So his work is perfected in the sense that it's completed. He qualifies as the priest. I don't think Hebrews is saying before that Jesus was imperfect in the sense that he was sinful, but he had not accomplished his work as the priest, the God-man who's both divine and human, and through his sacrificial death on the cross has accomplished the perfect sacrifice. And by the perfect sacrifice, he means the sacrifice that cleanses you from your sins. Barnabas Linders has a little book on the theology of Hebrews. And one of the things he says that I think is helpful, he says, what were the readers struggling with? And he thinks the readers might have been struggling with guilt, that a sense that their sins were not truly washed away. And Lindar says, and I think this is exactly right, the author emphasizes Jesus has, because he's the perfect priest, has cleansed us from our sins, So we can enter boldly by his blood, by his sacrifice, into God's presence, boldly and joyfully. So we have the theme of fear, but we also have that theme of confidence in Hebrews, of joy. It's it's not only fear.
0: We have two earlier priests mentioned in Hebrews. We have Joshua and Aaron. What role do they play in the argument?
1: I would argue that they play... And this is a significant theme in Hebrews. I think they play a typological role. The Hebrews loves to play with the patterns and correspondences, that's what I mean by typology, Mm -hmm. in the scriptures. So Joshua, the Old Testament Joshua, of course, it's actually, Joshua is another way of saying Jesus. So when you actually, when you read it in the Greek text... When you read about Joshua, it's just, it's just, Jesus. it's the word Jesus. Jo- Joshua, who's mentioned in chapter four, Joshua delivers his people through Joshua. Israel enters into the land of promise, the deliverance accomplished by Joshua into the land of promise, which is called the land of rest, right? Canaan. The author of Hebrews argues that anticipates the heavenly rest that we receive through Jesus Christ. So the, the the rest in the promised land points forward to a greater rest. So one of the characteristics of the typology in the book of Hebrews is there's a theme of escalation from an earthly land of promise to a heavenly land of promise. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then for Aaron, Aaron functions typologically as the high priest. And we've talked about some of these things, the sacrifices of Aaron— and successive high priests point forward to the final and perfect sacrifice of Christ. And so the author makes a big deal of the fact that, well, animal animal sacrifices finally cannot cleanse you uh, of your sins. I mean, after all, they're animals. <laughs> they are unwilling victims, and now now we have the sacrifice of a perfect priest. So so Aaron's priesthood, his earthly priesthood points forward to Jesus's uh, heavenly priesthood.
0: Very good. The book is Hebrews. Professor Tom Schreiner, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It's been a delight to be with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 877- Three three two two nine three zero.